Daniel's back. Hello, Richard, and so are you. Indeed, yes. Good to have you back. It's nice to be back. I, I may yet fall asleep during the show. Just give me a, a kick if I do. My, uh, my body clock's still a bit uncertain. Yeah, you've got the excuse of jet lag. Yes. I just look naturally dishevelled. <laughs> Talking about body clocks and things, don't forget the clocks go forward an hour tonight. Yeah. So if you want to be up early in the morning, set an alarm clock. Yeah, I did have a bit of a panic this morning when I got up at nine thinking, am I supposed to be on? <laughs> 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 and if Adam Wood's listening to us down in uh, down in the Wandsbeck area this morning, you are on at seven o'clock tomorrow morning. So do set your alarm clock, otherwise we'll all miss hell you. will break loose. We'll miss you, which would be terrible. Hey, he would. He's, yes. a, he's a good guy. So back to the movie hour, shall we? Yes. And uh, look at the local films. Well, it won't take long to look at the Annick Playhouse because there are none on this week because it's all live action on stage. So uh, okay. good for the Playhouse. Fair enough. Uh, unless you're a film uh, buff. But then on Wednesday the 4th of April, their next films, uh, when they're going to have, um, yes, W.E. less said about that, the better, really. Yeah, let's move on without <laughs> yes. giving any more praise yes. to Madonna. Yes. Um, up at the Maltings in Berwick, a slightly busier uh, schedule. Um, tomorrow afternoon at 12 o'clock is going to be The Lion King. No, that's probably tying in with the 3D re-release, but I take it the Maltings will be showing it in 2D. Yes, they And will. 2D is the best way to see it. I do think The Lion King is quite possibly the greatest Disney film of all time. I, no, even better than Snow White or any of the classic era stuff. Right. Um, then tomorrow afternoon at 2.30, and I don't think this is in the charts anymore, is Journey 2. The Mysterious Island. Yeah, which is a bit of a pot-boiler, frankly. I mean, I like the original enough because of the presence of Brendan Fraser, who does seem to do child-friendly entertainment rather well, but Dwayne The Rock Johnson doesn't quite... He drops the ball, and particularly yeah. in the scene where he has to play a song on the ukulele. Right. Uh, Tuesday evening at 8 o'clock is Coriolanus. Which I really like. I mean, Ray Fine's you know, directorial debut, he's taken one of the more difficult Shakespeare plays and made a, a decent fist of it. I think it's best... You're best seeing it for the performance of Vanessa Redgrave, who is in really top form. Yeah. Uh, she's doing lots of good films at the moment, isn't she? Mm. She's at that stage yeah. in her career when she can do that and Vanessa Redgrave thing yes. and pick up a massive check yeah. for coming on for five minutes. Yes. Uh, Berwick Film <laughs> Society on uh, Wednesday evening, 7.30, Farewell. I don't know anything about Farewell, I'm Shall afraid. Shall I just bring it up on my little screen Yes, here? you it's found another little gap in my knowledge. Yes, it's uh, a French film, La Faire Farewell. Right. Uh, with Guillaume Carré. Uh, can he? Uh, Emir Cust... Oh. <laughs> Interesting list. Go to the website. Yes. And, it's a uh, French film with lots of French people. What's it about? Uh, it's a spy thriller extraordinaire based on actual events which led to the crumbling of the Soviet Empire. In 1980s Moscow, a despondent, angry former KGB officer makes contact with the French government who select an unsuspecting businessman based in the city as their go-between for passing on the most guarded um, Soviet secrets. Yeah, I've got a feeling I've seen that film. I recognise the uh, I recognise the script, the mm. the background to it. Yeah, it does sound familiar. But you haven't. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you think you've seen it. Yes, <laughs> yes, indeed. Wouldn't be the first time. Yes. Uh, right. Let's uh, go back to my little uh, screen here. It's just taking a moment to uh, to load up, which isn't very helpful. Um, well, while, while it's loading, why yes. don't you tell us about some of the films that you saw when you were en route from uh, Singapore? Um, Right, what did I see? Uh, I saw Tower Heist, which I did quite enjoy, I've got to yeah, say. Yeah, I said so. it's Brett Ratner's best film, so, I mean, I yes. don't think that's saying much, but it's okay. It was, uh, it was a nice, uh, jolly film. I saw Time, um, with Justin Timberlake. Oh, In, in Time. Yes. Uh, is it In Time? In Time, yes. yeah. Yes, which, um, 
No, I didn't like very much. Yeah. Um, As a Logan's Run fan, you, you felt yes, it was a bit too familiar. Sort of a bit of a mashup of Logan's Run, really, and yeah. uh, one or two other films thrown in. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, uh, and oh, um, which is the um, the film that's got the um, the the marshal in? Um, the marshal. Yeah, um, it'll come back. You're going to have to give me more information yes, than that, anyway. but it'll come back to you. Yes. And we might as well talk about it now, because it's also on at the Maltings on next Saturday, 2.30 and 7 o'clock, and Sunday at 2.30, The Muppets! Which is great. We'll come to it yes. in more detail when we do the top ten, yes. but no, go and see Number it. Number nine in the charts at the moment. And still going really strong in terms yeah. of the money it's Shall taking. we talk about that now? Yes, yes I think I, we should. I love the film. I love the film. <clears throat> um, the only small caveat I've got on it, and um, it reminded me a little bit of 101 Dalmatians, which I think was a great film, if, uh, uh, other than Cruella de Vil, the humans were a bit of a waste of time. <laughs> and I got the same feeling with the Muppets. The Muppets are brilliant, the humans really didn't, weren't needed. But wasn't that always the point of the TV series? Now, the, the humans were only there to make fun of, and it was yeah. all about the puppets. Yeah, but there's this sort of corny uh, love, so-called love story mm. um, that sort of with the two humans that sort of drifts, drift being the appropriate word, yes. um, through the film. And oh, that's yes. between Jason Siegel and Amy Adams, yes, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And with that, yeah, <coughs> I think we could have had much more fun with just the Muppets. Okay. Right. Have, you, have you seen the, um, the alternative marketing campaign that they launched before the Muppets came out? No. The, the Muppets film was kept under wraps for quite a long time and they yeah. brought out um, a a fake poster for it around the time, I think it must have been, of the last Pirates of the Caribbean film, of Amy Adams and Jason Segel walking along and the film title was, you know, something like The Green Years and uh, when they first met they felt something and everything in green so it was billing it as a romantic comedy so people wouldn't know the Muppets were coming back. Yeah. Um, Morting's box office number is 01289 330999. Lots of films to go and see there in the coming week. Yeah, they're doing pretty yeah. well. Top 10 then. Number 10 is Safe House. Which is a bit disappointing. I really like Denzel Washington and I was hoping, you know, if you're going to cast him in a sort of action thriller, you'll get a decent character study, but it ends up being a little too much running, jumping and shooting. Uh, number nine, The Muppets. Which is so fantastic. we'll move on. Yeah. Number eight, This Means War. Which is wretched. I mean, McGee is one of the worst directors working today. He was once described um, by my favourite critic, Mark Kermode, as Michael Bay's untalented cousin, which I think tells you all you need to know. It's stupid. The premises are... No, the action set pieces are dull, and all three performers look like they've had all the life sucked out of them, and they're just doing this for some money. Talking about miserable films... Uh, oh, we've done that one, haven't we? That's <laughs> a better film, The Woman in Black. Yeah, I mean, The Woman in Black has misery in it but it is not miserable to watch i mean i think it's really good i i spoke two weeks ago about how i was in a screening in london where two yeah. people ran out because yes, they were so scared by it um what i like about it is that it's it's effective use of old-fashioned horror tropes in a way which is completely unhokey and not sort of self-aware postmodern ironic which you get all too often i don't think it's quite up there with the stage play but i was genuinely creeped out by it Right, and number six, um, Mark Wahlberg and the lovely Kate Beckinsale with Contraband. Yeah, which is you know, a pretty straightforward nuts and bolts thriller. It's a remake of an Icelandic film. The remake is being directed by the lead actor of the original, and Mark Wahlberg's on board as a producer. But basically, you know, it's a guy who's you know, who was a great smuggler. Now he's settled down and married to Kate Beckinsale, as often happens with smugglers. And uh, he gets called back in from one last job. It all goes wrong. You know, it's predictable and completely disposable, but absolutely fine. Right, another one for Matt. Matt Damon. This must be a week since we've had a film of his. Uh, we bought a zoo. Uh, at number five. Oh, yes. It's the new film from Cameron Crowe, who d 
has done things like Jerry Maguire, no, show me the money. Um, Almost Famous, which is kind of Spinal Tap light, but no, the only good performance from Kate Hudson. Vanilla Sky with Tom Cruise again, and most recently he did Elizabeth Town, which the less said about the better. Story is Matt Damon is a single parent who's got two young children, and uh, on a whim he moves to a new house, which turns out to be a zoo, and they basically try and rebuild the zoo and oh, look after all the animals. That's sweet. Well, this is the thing. It's a, a lot of people have complained about the Schmaltz factor, and if you know Cameron Crowe's films, he does like. I think his 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 mantra was to sugarcoat the bitter pill of life. That's one for the Easter holidays. Isn't it, it is. I mean, this is the thing. Speaking as someone, I know I'm speaking for yeah. you as well, who are very fond of the work of Lasse Hallstrom, who does yeah. do sentimentality yeah. until the cows come home. I'm willing to give this the benefit of a doubt, but I understand it won't be for everyone. Number four is John Carter. Which is terrible. I mean, it's incomprehensible, badly written tribe. Disney's already admitted that it's going to lose them around $200 million. Scary. Yeah, it is. I mean, it, you have the clash of two completely terrible forces. On the one hand, you've got a director in Andrew Stanton, who can direct. I mean, he's yeah. done Finding Nemo and Wally, and he wrote all three of the Toy Story films, so he knows what he's doing. But he's said in various interviews, I didn't know how, I didn't care how much it cost, I made it for me, which is always very, very dangerous. I mean, you think back to Heaven's Gate, where Michael Cimino single-handedly sank United Artists. And on the other hand, you've got, you know, it's a clash of that and marketing, where basically they've taken Of Mars out of the title in the hope that it would sell, because apparently mainstream people don't like science fiction films. It's just, it's a film that shows contempt for its audience. If they'd made it for a tenth of the money, they could have got something like Flash Gordon, but instead it's, you may as well see The Phantom Menace. Rather, and I'm not joking. Rather better film number three has just opened in Australia, apparently. Uh, the Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. And I know that because I was coming back on the plane with uh, uh, a lovely uh, older lady from uh, Pontyland um, who's just coming back from nine weeks in Australia. Incredible. Mm. And uh, I think it was pretty well her last night in Australia. She went to see the opening of the Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. And she absolutely loved it, as I think we do. Yeah, I think, no, I do like it. It's... It isn't the slightly smug British comedy that the poster would lead you to believe. I think John Madden's a pretty decent workman-like director. I mean, he's the guy who did Shakespeare in Love, so, no, okay. And I do think the cast are genuinely charming. 21 Jump Streets is at number two. Yeah, interesting remake of the 1980s cop show, which is probably only famous for the fact that it launched the career of Johnny Depp. And there's a great story that, you know, Johnny Depp left the show i think about two or three se seasons in because he was frightened as being typecast as a pretty boy and he was having a conversation with uh, the famous trash filmmaker john waters who did things like pink flamingos and the yeah. original version of hairspray and saying you know i'm really worried about being this sort of teenage icon and john waters said come and make a film with me i'll destroy your three years reputation in 30 seconds um so yeah I, it's no the story is you no know, channing tatum who's in the eagle and jonah hill they're rookie cops sent to patrol a high school there's lots of retro jokes about 80s culture. It's nothing to write home about, but if you yeah. like 80s nostalgia, it'll do fine. And number one, this is what the critics say, The Devil Inside is a cheap, choppy, unscary mess featuring one of the worst endings in recent memory. Do you agree, Daniel? I couldn't have put it better myself. I mean, the, the big problem I have with it is it's yet another found footage horror film, and no... When Blair Witch in the last broadcast started off with that, it was, you no, know, there was a validity in doing fan footage because there was a genuine sense that maybe what you were seeing in Blair Witch was yeah. more real than you thought. But ever since Paranormal Activity proved you can make bucket loads of money from spending absolutely nothing, I mean, I think this was yeah. made for just over a million dollars, everyone's jumping on the bandwagon and it's not scary anymore. Right, so recommendations for this week. Certainly The Muppets! Yeah, absolutely. The Muppets. Uh, the Woman in Black, if you want to be creeped out. Um, Best Exonic Marigold Hotel. 
if uh, you want something genuinely charming and a conditional recommendation for We Bought a Zoo, but don't come crying to me if you think it's too schmaltzy because it wears that schmaltz on its sleeve. And the film in time, I was thinking, of course, it was The Fugitive with the Marshal. Oh, of and, course, uh, yeah. And you have the timekeeper in um, if, in uh, in time who's chasing out. Oh, yes, that's the Killian Murphy yes, character. Yes, so that was that was the um, the other one I thought about. Yeah, so Logan's Run and uh, The Fugitive yeah. rolled into one. Yeah. With a bit of schmaltzy love in the middle. <laughs> so, but Justin Timberlake, um, who is he? Rem oh, never mind. I'll <laughs> think about that one. I can't quite get my head around it this morning. <laughs> Cult film after this. Through the morning. Through the morning. With Lionheart Radio. And it was, of course, Matthew Wolfenden from uh, Emmerdale and Dancing on Ice, who I thought looked a bit like Justin Timberlake. There is a faint resemblance, my, yeah. My head's about ten minutes behind my, my mouth this morning. Is that the jet lag? <laughs> yes, I think so. <laughs> so, do you want to talk for a little bit about The Omen? Okay, uh, yeah, this week's cult film is The Omen, a 1976 horror movie based on the novel by Richard Seltzer, who also wrote the screenplay. The, uh, the novel was released concurrently with the film as part of a wider marketing ploy, which uh, happens quite a lot nowadays with a more sort of blockbuster end of horror. Directed by Richard Donner, who is still most famous for people as being the helmer of the original and still the best Superman film. Yeah. Also did the Lethal Weapon series in the late 80s. We talked about him the first show in 2012 because he did Lady Hawk as well, yeah. which we're both fans of. And this was his big break into filmmaking after a, a, some formative years in television. He'd made a couple of smaller films in the late 1960s, but they hadn't got very wide release or attention. And it was the box office success of this film that got him the Superman gig ultimately, where he was working with the Sulkins, which had a mixed relationship, and of course Mario Puzo, who wrote the screenplay for Superman yeah. and also wrote the screenplay for The Gone father films uh, made on a budget of 2.8 million dollars and took about 60 million when first released it was one of the biggest hits of 1976 oh so nice to have a little little profit like that yes would you have seen the omen the first time round? um probably not the first time i would have uh, been underage i think but was it an uh, ex-certificate then i think it was, it was right yes. um i definitely saw it when i was at, at university and what do you remember thinking about it um i think it was quite a good film it's a bit not necessarily my sort of film, mm -hmm. um, but then a lot of that genre aren't my necessarily <laughs> my sort of film. So, um, yeah, I thought it was pretty good. Okay. Um, I'm a big fan of Gregory Peck, so anything he does has got to be good. Absolutely. Well, when we talked about The Boys from Brazil, we, we yes. both share admiration yes. of him. So, like I say, it made 60 million. It was one of the biggest hits of uh, the year, and it's regarded as the sort of the commercial high watermark of what's known as pedophobic horror pedophobic meaning the fear of children which traces yeah. back to things like um the village of the damned which then in turn inspires rosemary's baby and of course the exorcist um there is some dispute among horror fans over its worth and the general thing is most people seem to love it mark gatis in his um three-part series on BBC4 called A History of Horror claimed that it was the greatest horror film of the 1970s. Yeah. And uh, it's appeared on several lists. It's on uh, number 81 on AFI's 100 Years, 100 Thrills, uh, number 31 on the Chicago Film Critics Association of the Scariest Films Ever, and also 16 on the 100 Scariest Movement 100 Scariest Movie Moments run by uh, the channel Bravo. And I think the moment they picked was um, the moment where the, the early hanging sequence, which we'll come to. There are, however, some dis 
detractors. Um, Harry Medfed, who was the guy behind the Golden Turkey Awards, put it on his uh, 1978 list of the 50 worst films of all time. And Mark Kermode, who of course no, has no big influence on the horror genre, said it, he thought it was enjoyable but essentially an exorcist ripoff. Yeah. So, no, I'm, I would not entirely disagree with him on that. It did inspire a number of sequels, um, which are all interesting for their various reasons. Uh, Damien Omen 2, which looked at uh, no, Damien in his adolescent years, that was partly directed by Mark Hodges of, Mike Hodges, sorry, of Flash Gordon fame, yeah. but he was booted off halfway through for working too slowly. Um, Omen 3, The Final Conflict, which features um, one of Sam Neill's very first performances, long before he was, you no know, Dr. Grant in Jurassic Park. Yeah. And uh, most recently, Omen 4, Awakening, which is actually quite dreadful. There was also a shot-for-shot -shot remake, which was made in 2006 and released on the 6th of the 6th, 06. So, yeah. cashing in on that whole sort of thing. So, the plot is, if you never seen the omen it's uh, it follows uh, robert thorne who's played by gregory peck whom we talked about last year when we did the boys from brazil and his wife catherine who's played by lee remick and the film begins in rome where catherine has given birth to a son but the baby has died without her knowledge robert is absolutely heartbroken one of the priests who is hanging around at the hospital uh, shows him a baby whose mother has just died and says why don't you adopt this child your wife doesn't know that your son is dead it'll yeah. be heartbreaking for her why don't you yeah. do this and after some reluctance he adopts it he convinces his wife that it's their son and they name him damien uh, we cut to five years later where the thorns are living in england because robert is the u.s ambassador to great britain and during Damien's fifth birthday party in the grounds of their massive house in the southeast, um, Damien's nanny jumps off a window ledge with a rope around her neck and hangs herself Ooh. while saying the words, Look at me, Damien, it's all for you. Mm. So already there's something creepy going on. Um, having employed a new nanny, played by Billy Whitelaw, who is incredibly creepy for reasons that will become clear, Thorne tries to find out what happens. He becomes involved with uh, Father Brennan, a mad priest, played by former Doctor Who, Patrick Troughton. Yeah. And uh, a photographer killed Keith. Jennings, played by David Warner, whom I would most associate with Dr. Necessita from the Steve Martin comedy The Man With Two Brains, which is very yeah. underrated. And he finds in certain photographs that Jennings has taken these sort of shadowy, these foreshadowings of their doom, the omens of yeah. their death, and it event they eventually become convinced that Damien is the devil who has come back to Earth and is going to take yeah. over the world. So, like I say, The Omen is part of a long line of films in the 60s and 70s that examine that fear of children, but with a distinctly supernatural bent. And the extent of this varies. I mean, you look at something like Rosemary's Baby, in which, I mean, Rosemary's Baby, the twist has become so famous that we can watch it now thinking, yeah, the devil's involved right from the start, yeah. particularly in that very vivid dream sequence where Mia Farrow realises halfway through the act that it's not in her imagination. Whereas if you look at something like Don't Look Now, where, yes, the spirit world is involved or present, but what is its role? Is it ambiguous? Is it malevolent? Yeah. And so forth and so forth. Um, the Omen is very upfront in its treatment of the devil and the spiritual issues surrounding it. I mean, it does take the dramatic irony of the audience, dramatic irony being we know what's going to happen, but the yeah. characters don't, and it plays that to the absolute limits. But it does remain one of the, certainly one of the creepiest, I mean, scariest, uh, that's debatable, but one of the creepiest films of the mid-1970s, with great performances, a great score from Jerry Goldsmith, who would later do things like Basic Instinct yeah. and so forth, and you know, very solid direction. The best way to understand The Omen from a suspense horror point of view is to look at Alfred Hitchcock. Have you seen one of Hitchcock's early films called Sabotage? 
I don't remember from it. the 1930s. Um, basically, it's a it's a film that's famous for for the fact that Hitchcock cited it in later years as one of his failings because yeah. there is a sequence in Hitchcock always said the way to build up suspense is to put a bomb under a table and then you know basically don't talk about it and the audience knows yeah. it's there and the characters have yeah. to find out. Well, there is a sequence in Sabotage where a young boy is carrying a parcel across London, which we the audience know has a bomb inside and it's built up and up and up, so you know the yeah. bomb's going to go off at one o'clock, but then it doesn't go off at one and it goes off at, no, not one minute past, not two minutes past, and then it blows up on a bus, killing the boy and everyone on the bus. Mm -hmm. And when the film was released, um, Hitchcock got a lot of backlash from this, not because of the fact that a child was being killed, but because he had basically put the audience through the mill and not given them a payoff with the suspense, saying, yeah. you have to have them throw the bomb out of the bus and then it goes off, yeah. because otherwise we feel like we've been tricked. Yeah. And it's interesting that in the year that Hitchcock made his last film, which is a, a rather indifferent thing called Family Plot, The Omen comes along and basically says, actually, we don't have to do that. That rule yeah. is not valid. So you have a film which is, which does have the accumulation of tension and suspense because you have the idea of, you no, know, is Damien going to just walk yeah. over everyone or is he going to be stopped? But the film is actually very open-ended. It's actually closer, in a way, to Hitchcock's Vertigo, where, you no, know, you think everything's going to be resolved, and then it ends with Jimmy Stewart standing on the ledge after his, yeah. the love of his life has fallen off. And Vertigo is not a typical Hitchcock film, yeah. by any stretch of the imagination. I love it as much as you do, probably. Yeah. So you, what's fitting about the film is that, you know, it's a... It's a film about what will happen as opposed to what is happening, so it kind of makes sense for it to be completely open-ended. I mean, there is no big sort of special effects ending like in uh, the Arnold Schwarzenegger film End of Days, where, yeah. no Gabriel Byrne gets punched in the face and that's defeating the devil. Or, for instance, the famous ending of Omen 3 where Christ comes back, yes. and apparently that's all okay. <laughs> yeah, so, no, it does build up tension to an unbearable level and then says, you know what, we're not going to leave you on a sort of juicy note and everything tied up, you're just going to have to deal with it. Yeah. Um, there has a lot been written about the spiritual significance of The Omen and the time in which it was written. There's a TV documentary called The Omen Legacy, which interviewed both Christians and members of the Church of Satan, along with the filmmakers. Um, but basically they were talking about the fact that the mainstream success of Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist, and to a certain extent Village of the Damned, was counterpointed by things like Jesus Christ Superstar and Godspell finding wide audiences, and the fact that a lot of people from the counterculture movement did convert to various forms of Christianity yeah. as the 70s wore on. There's also been a lot written about how the film is supposedly cursed. There's another documentary called The Curse of the Omen, where they talk about the fact that you know, Gregory Peck and David Seltzer took separate planes from Hollywood to the UK to film, yeah. and both the planes were struck by lightning. Uh, there was a big car crash on the first day of filming, which almost killed half of the actors. Richard Donner's hotel was bombed by the IRA, and he barely oh, escaped. Yeah. And one of the planes that they were going to use to, to fly all the equipment over was rechartered, and then that subsequently crashed, killing everyone. So it's very easy to read too much into those events. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of coincidences Isn't for it? there not yeah. to be something there. But no, it's very easy to read too much, just as it's very easy to dismiss it as, no, it is mere coincidence, stop yeah. reading stuff into it. I know. Speaking as a Christian who has been, no, on the receiving end of some pretty nasty stuff spiritually, I can't just turn my nose up at it, but within yeah. the context of seeing, of reviewing this film, taking all that stuff seriously, A, isn't going to do us any good, and B, it doesn't yeah. make the film any better or worse. So. Yeah. 
we have to look at the spiritual issues in the omen in terms of their significance within the film first and foremost in other words do they make sense within the story if we want yeah. to believe them afterwards that's entirely up to us right you would agree with that yes yeah okay glad to hear that um so the big question raised by the omen is the the old debate between free will and predeterminism in other words what is our role in this great cosmic battle between God and the devil, which is going on outside of our concept of space and time? Now, what is our, our role within that? Because you have the, uns the seemingly unstoppable nature of Damien, who comes into the world and starts fulfilling all these prophecies about creating armies yeah. on either shore, which we'll come to in a bit. So you have this idea of you know, the forces of good and evil so locked together that... Even the characters like Robert Thorne, who are in the middle of this, feel like pawns in this great spiritual yeah. war. They're being moved around. And they have no real influence over the events that aspire, transpire, rather. And the f whatever religious or any other kind of faith the characters have, it almost becomes a, a crutch of fear. There's that Nietzschean quote about, no, Christianity is the crutch of the intellectually yeah. feeble, or something along those lines, um, which I incidentally don't agree with. Um, and you have that reinforced, of course, in the fact that, you know, the famous expression, the camera never lies. You know, you see these black marks on the photographs and they don't fade. It's not like yeah. in Back to the Future where you can go back and change the photographs so people yeah. stop fading out of them. And that's interesting for the fact that, you know, for a film, you know, which has cult status among horror fans but is at the more mainstream end, that's a pretty fatalistic bent for, for a film that took a lot of money. Yes, indeed. Yes. Um, so, I mean, I suppose that's part of the 70s culture where, you no, know, it was a, a backlash against counterculture, but again, it's difficult to uh, avoid reading too much into that. It's reinforced by the fact that all the characters have very clear preordained motivations. I mean, both of Damien's nannies in their own way turn out to be Satan worshippers, and that's not a massive plot spoiler because you only have yeah. to look at Billy Whitelaw to know that she's up to no good. <laughs> I mean, unlike... So you don't get an upfront revelation like yeah. at the end of Rosemary's Baby, which has that chilling final shot of Mia Farrow smiling at her yeah. child, who is the devil's spawn. Yeah. Um, but there is this... That's counterpointed by Jerry Goldsmith's nerve-shredding score, which uses you know, opera yeah. and choral music, but also has the, the classic Jerry Goldsmith strains of just massive violins all going <laughs> yeah, like, no, not yeah. quite like Bernard Herrmann in Psycho, yeah. but it's nearly there. You, you can even look at that saying, you know, Robert Thorne's, when he decides to kill his son Damien, you could think, well, he's made that decision. But on the other hand, you could argue, well, that's all part of Damien's plan, because the point yeah. is he's been born into this family so he could become the next ambassador and then get to the president and so on and so forth. There's that famous final shot of the where him walking towards the White House and then going to the funeral and smiling at the camera, which is, <laughs> what's he going to have? Um, it does raise the troubling supplementary question about no, if everything about this war is predetermined and we have no control of it, where does the church come in? Uh, no, are they in some way complicit in it? For instance, it's a priest that suggests that Damien be adopted in the first place, so you think, yeah. okay, did he know that was going to happen? Or alternatively, do the church actually, are they trying to fight against it? Because yeah. you have the character of Father Brennan, who, like I say, is played by uh, Patrick Troughton, and a surprisingly straight performance. I mean, it's not the sort of entirely mad Cassandra-like performance that you'd think, considering yeah. how Patrick Troughton was as Doctor Who. And you have someone who is, you know, who has his head full of these strange things about the Book of Revelation. He's a Cassandra character to some extent, but on the other hand, his main motivation is just grief and remorse about not being able to stop Damien yeah. beforehand. And, of course, he gets one of the more famous deaths in the film where he gets impaled by a flagpole that's struck by lightning. Even if you don't find the theology of the omen deeply unsettling, even if you're coming to the film as in someone who you know, doesn't believe in God or the devil or supernatural or anything like that, it's still a very creepy film simply by the way that it's edited. I mean, yeah. it is a masterclass in how you can create a very effective horror film simply by your choice of camera angles. And there's two examples of this. 
when you have the first is you look at the the use of the photographs which have the omens of how people will die so it, it's they're showing you without showing you you're thinking yeah. okay that guy's got a black line that's going from his shoulder to his neck how's that going to happen so that you're kind of constantly looking around yeah. Pono for that where's the latest spear where is there a sword yeah. that could do that and then when Patrick Charlton when the flagpole's flying towards him it's cutting back and forth between the pole and his face and the pole and his face and then immediately goes to the wide shot when it goes straight through and it's yeah. genuinely creeping out yeah even better example is the famous death of David Warner's character, which features the first uh, decapitation sequence in Hollywood cinema. I think that's correct. That's, that's yeah. widely known. Right. Basically, we realise that David Warner's going to cop it when we see a photograph of him with a black line through his neck. And again, we're looking around thinking, okay, stay away from the knives, stay away from the swords, yes, stay away yeah. from anything that looks long and thin and flat. And then they have the conversation with Leah McKern's character. Leah McKern turns up as this mad priest who yeah. gives Gregory Peck a set of knives and says, you have to kill your son, otherwise it's going to all go wrong. <laughs> and that typical Leah McKern performance where he is being silly yeah. but enjoying himself. Um, and so after that conversation, we think, okay, well, you know, maybe this film's going to have an uptake and they're going to kill Damien and it's fine. And then suddenly David Warner gets his head sheared off by a falling plate of glass. And you see it from four different angles and the head tumbling over and over itself. And I yeah. still don't know how they do it. Yeah. I mean, there's been all sorts written about, you know, at what point does it become a dummy and what point is it really David Warner? But it is, it's not gruesome, but yeah. it just really freaks you out because... It's so easy these days with CGI, wouldn't it? But uh, yeah, I mean, it's very uh, challenging. Yeah, I mean, in the Shot for Shot remake, it is, it's David Fulis doing it and it is CGI, so it's a yeah. lot more underwhelming. And actually the glass shatters as it goes through his neck. I mean, the whole point is it didn't. Yeah. So the original is by far the best. You have this brilliantly creepy atmosphere where you do genuinely feel surrounded by the very essence of evil. I mean, yeah. Donna clearly knows his gothic horror well enough to you know, sort of recreate. It's, it's a bit like sort of the, the more serious end of Hammer, things like Dracula, Prince of Darkness, where the architecture, in the same way as Polanski's films, looks like it's harboring some kind of evil. I mean, if you look at Polanski's apartment trilogy, particularly Repulsion, where you have the sense of there's something even in the walls which is malevolent and going against mm -hmm. the heroine, which, I mean, you can certainly, even if you look at something like Robert Wise's The Haunting, where there are long scenes in that where you find yourself finding faces in the wallpaper and thinking there is something there. And it's a question of, is, yeah. it, is it there or is it in your imagination? So for instance, the Thorns house in England, although from the outside it looks like this wonderful big mansion, inside it's all dark corridors yeah. and big window seats, you know, classic gothic horror mansion stuff. And you have, you know, a really, like I say, a really effective editing throughout. I mean, the, the, the one that, of, there's one of the scariest moments that people always talk about is where Lee Remick gets it, basically, where she's injured herself in, and gone into hospital. Billy Whitelaw turns up, and there is, again, a rapid cutting between yeah. close-up of Whitelaw's face and close-up of Remick's face, where she realises she's going to die, and then she gets pushed out of the window. And again, that's a very effective way of doing it. The one weak spot, I would say, with The Omen is there is a lot of exposition between Gregory Peck and David Warner when they're basically, they've got all these, these prophecies about what Damien's going to do, and there's a sequence of them being outside a cafe where they're trying to piece them all together for how they'd yeah. match up to events. And those scenes are always very difficult to do. Yeah. I mean, if you look at, again, at End of Days, where it's, you know, um, you have a, a, literally a scene of a priest writing 666 on a piece of paper, turning it upside down, saying 666 becomes 999, like 1999, the year of his return. And you just yeah. think, could you not have tried a bit harder? Yes, yeah. yeah. So in this sequence, you have, you know, things like, you know, uh, Damien creating armies on either shore, and David Warner says, well, surely that must mean the common market. It's like, um... <laughs> 
Okay, um, not sure, but I'll just yes. about go on with it. Yeah. It doesn't entirely derail the film, but that's yeah. the one point where you think, yeah. okay, this is getting a bit silly, yeah. and you need to pull yourself together, and fortunately they do. So in terms of the performances, I think, you no. Know, I like Gregory Peck very much. You no, know, in the Boys yeah. from Brazil, he's 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 much less of a ham than he is here. And this was the thing that kicked off the late period of yeah. his career. And you no, know, he does look the part very much, and he's exactly the right age. Lee Remick doesn't have much to do apart from you no. Know, in the second half of the film, when Gregory Peck and David Warner are roaming around Italy looking for Damien's yeah. grave, but you no, know, she is pretty good. David Warner, who, like I say, was, is great in The Man with Two Brains. If you haven't seen that, it's a really great comedy. He is one of the most underrated actors working today, you know, and he, he does very well. Liam McKern, like I say, turns up and does the best he can with a silly cameo where he effectively comes on for two yeah. minutes, says, here's the knives, and I'm going off to do some more archaeology. And then you've got Damien himself, played by the child actor Harvey Stevens, who I think has a bit part in the remake. And no, he didn't do much after this, but basically yeah. he's, he was four years old and you put him in a suit, he's instantly creepy. So he does his job. So to sum up, it is a horror classic. It's, no, I don't think either time or the sequels or the pointless remake have dented the fact that it's really, yeah. really creepy. For Peck fans like ourselves, it's a good, solid, autumnal performance. Perhaps not up with his best work, which would probably be things like Spellbound or To Kill a Mockingbird, in which, yes. you know, you can't do much better than To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, indeed. Yes. Um, for Donna, yeah, for Donna fans, it's it's a, another calling card saying, you know, there's more to him yeah. than just blockbusters, and then Lady Hawk's good proof of that as well. And for everyone else who hasn't, you know, taken as big an interest in horror as I have, it's a well-constructed, deeply creepy chiller, which still has the potency to scare you half to death. Sounds good. Mm. Let's have some music. Is the fresh sound for the district live, live from Annick? This is Lionheart Radio. Lovely song there, one of our local artists, Avril Huntley, and love and happiness. A little bit different next week because it's Lionheart Radio's fifth birthday. Happy mm -hmm. birthday to us and all that. Mm -hmm. uh, so to celebrate, we have a 24-hour sponsored broadcast and uh, everyone else's chance to have a shout out and to sponsor and to help keep us on air. Which means we're going to late at night. Yes, we? we are going to do uh, 11 p.m. in the evening. 11 p.m. Uh, next uh, Saturday night because we're doing an X-rated version of the show, and uh, we will be talking about Heather's, which is one of my favourite comedies. Right, <laughs> made back in 1989. Yes, not for the faint-hearted, but it'll, for those yes. who can stick it, it'll be great. So, if you are a film fan and uh, you are um, of the right age, then listen to us 11 o'clock next Saturday. Yeah. And I can't remember who's on instead of us next this time next week, but you'll love it, yeah. I'm sure. The schedule will be up on the website sometime yes. next week. Great. So that's uh, next week. As for this week, we'll have a look at the new releases now. And um, a few uh, look like quite good ones, but we'll start with the one that probably isn't so good, which is Act of Valor. Yes, Act of Valor, because it's, it's an American spelling. Uh, it's the debut effort by actors Mike McCoy and Scott Walsh, and scripted by Kurt Johnstad, who did 300, the, Zach, yeah. the definitive Zack Snyder film. Um, it's almost the opposite of those, you know, based on a true story dramas. You no, know, yeah. the phrase based on a true story means made up, fictionalised, <laughs> not much to do with it except the names. So instead of a real story with real characters that are played by actors, you have a fictional story about the US Navy SEALs with Navy SEALs, real life soldiers, playing all the characters. And it's a story about the recovery of a, a kidnapped CIA operative yeah. and global terrorism and so forth. When I saw the trailer, I was convinced that it was going to be like something, something like Spinal Tap or Hot Shots or Tropic Thunder in the sense that the extent to which the characters take themselves seriously is some kind of absurdist gag. Yeah. But as it went on, I thought, 
actually, this isn't this isn't a joke. This is deadly serious. I mean, part of me was just bored because yeah. I I do find sort of all that sort of military procedural stuff not engaging no, yeah. in and of itself. I mean, yeah. within a film in something like Full Metal Jacket, it is. But then that's yeah. because it's Full Metal Jacket. Um, part of me was offended because it is effectively a propaganda campaign for saying how great the Navy SEALs are and by yeah. the way join. In the same way as as Top Gun was accused of being a propaganda film to make yeah. people join the Air Force, and yes. apparently you no, know, it did work. And part of me thought, well, it's a half-decent idea of getting you no know, real real people yeah. to play. I mean, in the same way as you know, Paul Greengrass, when he did United 93, he tried to get people who were closely involved with that particular yeah. disaster. So, no, the problem is then either they're not Paul Greengrass or yes. they've just deeply misjudged the subject matter and turned yeah. it into a recruitment film. So, no dice. Sorry. Right. A little bit better, hopefully, and it's always good to see uh, Woody Harrelson back. So, um, The Hunger Games. Yeah. Um, it's an adaptation of the first in a series of novels by Suzanne Collins, which are being billed as the next Twilight, although they have nothing yeah. to do with vampires. Directed by Gary Ross, who's had a pretty interesting career, actually, because he did Pleasantville, from the late 90s, which has you know, a sort of retro 50s look, a bit yeah. like The Truman Show. Um, sea Biscuit, um, which also, both of those films feature Tobey Maguire in some role. I think Sea Biscuit was Oscar nominated. Uh, it's a horse racing drama. He's most famous or most endeared for the fact that he wrote Big, the Tom Hanks film from the oh, late yes, 80s. Oh, yes, yeah. Yeah, which yeah. is held up as the, as the star-making performance of Tom Hanks, the thing that made him yeah. a fresh phrase star before he became the poster boy for, t for Steven Spielberg and Ron yeah. Howard in the mid-90s and won an Oscar pretty much every year. Um, so it's set in a dystopian North America, which is now divided into 12 different districts and called Pan Am, which, you know, Pan Am, Pan Am, yeah. you, get, you get it. Um, so every year, a boy and a girl between the ages of 13 and 18 are chosen from each district to participate in the annual Hunger Games where basically 24 people go in and only one comes out alive. Right. And Jennifer Lawrence, who was in uh, Winter's Bone and X-Men First Class, uh, plays Katniss Everdeen, who is the, male the, the prominent female protagonist who is one of two selectors from her district to go and fight. She yeah. goes in place of her younger sister who was selected and then she yeah. has to go in her place. From a cineast's point of view, um, there are clear things to which this owes a debt. The biggest of which is a Japanese film that you wouldn't have seen called Battle Royale. You wouldn't have seen it because it's incredibly violent and very darkly funny. Um, it's you know, basically, you know, 44 schoolchildren get marooned on an island and they kill each other. I mean, it basically takes you, it takes Lord of the Flies and then plays yeah. it for yeah. dark comic effect. I mean, in a sense, it also owes a massive debt to A Clockwork Orange, yeah. which I was watching again this Monday and just was left dumbstruck by how amazing it is. Um, also in the back of this stuff, you've got things like The Running Man, which is an Arnold Schwarzenegger vehicle based very loosely on a novel by Stephen King, and Stephen King himself has come out and said yeah. he's a fan of Suzanne Collins' work. Also, there are little bits in there of Logan's Run, insofar as, you no, know, it is on one level a man and a woman escaping from a civilization that's yeah. feeding on itself, and they go off yeah. and live in the woods for a bit, which, of course, you know, in the second yeah. bit of Logan's Run is quite central to the plot. Clearly neither of us are the target audience, because it is aimed at teenagers, but considering the subject matter, I think they have done a pretty good job. It is at the dark end of teenage action-adventure sci-fi yeah. stuff, so it is more in the league, I suppose, of the later Harry Potter films. Yeah. I know you weren't a big fan of the last one, but yeah. no, it's, it's, in, it's in that sort of area in terms of its colour palette, anyway. It's got strong, believable characters. Jennifer Lawrence is really 
terrifically charismatic. I do think she is turning into a really great actress. It does look really good. I mean, it, it's got a sort of a strange popcorn-y, pot-boiler look in some of it, yeah. but it's also very glossy. It reminded me a bit of Tron Legacy. It's you no know, a good, in, it's fantastic, though, no. In a week where John Carter is stinking up the cinemas and showing how bad mainstream science fiction can be if you let the marketing people loose on it, it's great to have a mainstream sci-fi blockbuster which not only understands its audience, but actually understands the themes and the language of sci-fi and does it properly. So I think it's going to be a good film. Great. Right. Art House next. And this has won loads of prizes already. Uh, Grand Jury Prize at the Cannes Film Festival. Golden, Glo Golden Globe nominee. So tell us all about it, which is um, The Kid with a Bike. Yeah, not to be confused, of course, with The Boy on a Bicycle, which is... Ridley Scott's first short film, All right. which uh, he did just before he yes. made the famous Hovis adverts. Um, it's the new film from Jean-Pierre and Luc Dardenne, uh, French brothers who uh, first came to prominence with a film called The Sun, which was about nine years ago. Like you say, this did win the Grand Jury Prize at Cannes uh, last May. Story follows uh, a troubled 11-year-old boy called Cyril, who is played by uh, Thomas Doré who is abandoned by his father. He searches obsessively for his lost bicycle, which is the last symbol that he has of their relationship. Yeah. Uh, he gets taken in by a kind hairdresser played by Cécile de France, who was most recently in um, Hereafter, the Clint Eastwood film starring Matt Damon. And um, they form a strained, if strong relationship while he's trying not to fall in with a couple of rough yeah. gangs. And uh, there's a sequence in the trailer of him standing behind a, a street corner holding a baseball bat and clearly up to no good. I mean, like all the Dardenne's work, it has a very poetic, ethereal touch in which it, no, it's not striving for the most realistic depiction of events, but there is something really sort of heartwarming yeah. and, and not gentle about it. And it is one of those films in the same way as you know, Love Like Poison or the Three Colours trilogy, which while you're watching it, you don't have as much of an emotional impact as you might think. But when it's over, you get a strange sort of a resonance that stays with you for a couple of days. I mean, the, the film obviously owes a big debt to, to the 40s film Bicycle Thieves, which is an yeah. Italian film about a father and son stealing bicycles over Rome and you know, trying to basically yeah. stay together without getting arrested. And I think if you, know, if you fancy a bit of world cinema, you know, if there's nothing of the big English language films that take your fancy, it will work very well. Good. And we finish with uh, another uh, Artas film that the critics are absolutely raving about, Wild Bill. Yeah, I wouldn't entirely describe this as art house but it, it is yeah. good to see it's a british film and it's good to see the critics raving about it it's the directorial debut of dexter fletcher who um is a, has been acting for a long time apparently he has bit parts as a child actor in the longer friday which we talked about ages and ages ago and he also turns up in the opening scenes of the elephant man you know the sequence where yeah, yeah. the young boy is telling john hurt to stand up and then john hurt turns towards camera and it cuts to anthony hopkins sobbing his eyes out yeah now he's the boy who says stand up and bit gets to beat up John Hurt a bit. So he, since then, he's become most famous for working with Guy Ritchie in Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels. Yeah. Um, so the story follows an ex-con called Bill Hayward, played by Charlie Creed Miles, who has just come out on parole after an eight-year stretch, and he comes home to find his two sons, who are 11 and 15, that's the age, not the names. Yeah. Uh, sorry, bad joke. Uh, they've been abandoned by their mother, so again, there's a, yeah. a link with the kid with the bike there, and uh, they're about to be taken into care. The eldest son, called Dean, who's played by Will Poulter, who was in Son of Rambo yeah. and was also Eustace in the third Narnia film. He forces him to stay with him after saying, I'll, if you don't stay and take care of us, I'll grass you up for dealing and you'll be back inside. Um, and he tries to stay out of trouble and rebuild his family. I mean, when I heard about this, first of all, I thought, okay, Guy Ritchie connection, it's going to be another sort of sleazy, leering, geezery film. But actually, it's a good, pleasant surprise. I mean, 
it's a very well judged film with a very soft heart which keeps its focus on the relationship yeah. between the father and the sons and how difficult it is for people to rebuild their lives having come out of prison very good set of performances i mean charlie creed miles is very convincing andy circus turns up as the sort of the dark murky gang boss and he does a yeah. very good job of that as he would um will poulter is turning into a great actor i mean like i said i like him very much in son of rambo and he's taking on older roles now but he he looks like he's going to stay the course yeah and there is also a supporting role for from Neil Maskell, who was the lead in Kill List, which is a very good film last year. Very brutal, but very interesting. So, there's lots of good stuff out this week. Yeah, sounds great. So, recommendations? Well, pretty much everything except Act of Valor. If I had to pick one film, I would say Hunger Games, because, you know, I often get accused of not picking mainstream films, and I do think this is a mainstream blockbuster with bite. Right, great. Well, thanks a lot. And uh, I was just trying to remember where I'd seen the Dexter Fletcher. Of course, it was uh, Bugsy Malone. Yes, is, he does turn up in that. One of my favourite films. Uh, I love Alan Parker. Very clever. So, that's it. Hope you've enjoyed the programme. We'll be back next Saturday between 11 and 12, later tonight, yes. for the X-rated version. You'll hear this Thursday? Yep, absolutely. One till three, so I'll catch you then. So, have a great week. Lion Heart Radio. Voice of Northumberland